Yes, my name is Robert McMillan, and you're all very welcome to the latest edition of Erchul and Hoyle, and Druhid's traditional music podcast in which we go behind the music and talk to trad A-listers about the people they are and the music they play. And for anyone who doesn't know, Andrehead is an arts centre based in Belfast which promotes the Irish language and traditional music throughout the city. Well, this week I'm thrilled to have as my guest Erdo O. Leonard, as most people will know already. Erdo Leonard is a Shando singer, record producer, a former member of the Afro Celt Sound System, a current member of the Trad Supergroup The Gloaming, and he's also recorded several solo albums. You're very welcome to the show, Erla. Thank you, Robert. My pleasure. Uh, you're not in a psychiatrist's chair, but I'd like to take you back to your childhood and uh, the young boy growing up in Cool A. What was life like for the pre-teen Irla O'Leonard? Well, <laughs> can I go back? Can I remember? <laughs> well, I grew up in, in a rural, very rural part of Ireland. Um, I grew up, my father was a teacher in the local post-primary school. He was a principal teacher. My mother uh, was a mother of a, a stay-at-home mum, as they would be called, but she had 12 children. We lived on a small farm, about 40 acres, surrounded by other small farmers. Uh, we, we, we grew our own vegetables. We had cows. Um, so my, my upbringing was very rural, um, you know, very isolated in some ways. Um, we lived quite far from the nearest village, maybe four miles. Uh, so we went to school in Ballyborney. I might have been expected to go to school in Coulee, which was a little nearer, except that my father was going on the daily trip to Ballyborney to teach in his own school. And uh, so, so we kind of, we had our own little tribe up on, up on, up on the mountain. Um, <coughs> and, you know, and let's bear in mind, it was the 60s and 70s as well in, in, uh, in Ireland and the 80s. So it was a very different Ireland back then. Absolutely. Um, the folk revival was going on then. I don't know. Oh, you were born in 1964, but just think about the folk revival. Uh, in the house, did you, were you listening to people like uh, the Clancy brothers and uh, the Dubliners? Or was that a sort of uh, foreign to a Gael Tacht Shannos singer? It, it wasn't entirely foreign. We had Clancy Brother records. And as I, as I got older, uh, we had uh, Horselip records. And because and, I, I, I was not the oldest in my family at all. I was down near the end. My older brothers had um, records by various artists, including, um, you know, Celtic glam rock Horselips, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and I think my parents had some Clancy Brother records i suppose if you like the, the lingua franca and general musical language of the household was traditional music uh, certainly in terms of um you know the the locality um i was learning the tin whistle i was learning shanos singing 
from various teachers uh, during the week and in, in night classes, and so were my siblings. But at the same time, um, Coulet was on the sort of, strangely enough, on, on, on the sort of touring circuit for some, some folk bands. I remember seeing, for example, uh, the Bothy Band and indeed Acoustic Clonad in the local parish hall in Coulet when I was a kid. Um, and as well as that, like most people in Ireland, there was this magical thing called the radio, <laughs> which played all sorts of music other than traditional music. In fact, there, there was little, little or no traditional music to be heard on radio back then. Um, the, this was before the advent of Radio Nguyen And uh, I remember listening to all sorts of radio stations, Radio Luxembourg and all of these other radio stations throughout my teens. Yeah. Were your parents musical and what impact did having uh, Bess Cronin as an aunt have on you? Although, of course, you know, uh, Bess died before you were born. Well, uh, you're quite right in saying that she had died before I was born, but there was a lot of talk about her. And, and your listeners who wouldn't know who she is, she, she, she was a, a famed singer. She came, she came to prominence in terms of the public ear in the 50s through the recordings of Alan Lomax. And prior to that, recordings made by Seamus Ennis for the BBC. Um, my, my abiding memories really about Bess Cronin is that there was a sort of a cassette tape circulating <laughs> in, between cousins uh, between my family and my cousins, the Cronins in the Malines and other, other families, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy going back, you know, how long, who knows. Uh, and, you know, there was some challenge in deciphering some of the words, such, such was the quality of the tape or lack of. And um, she was always being discussed for sure. And as I, as I became more involved in singing myself, and more prominently involved, you know, inevitably she was mentioned as an influence by others rather more than myself, you know, because of course one of the tropes of traditional music is that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, or was anyway, and perhaps still is normal to cite familial influence, you know, and uh, her heredity as a sort of a, a stamp or of approval as it were, in the, in, in the authenticity wars. <laughs> so it, it would have been there as, as, as part of the, the inter-family messaging, shall we say. Okay. Um, you said as you became more prominent and more active in the singing world, when did you know that this was the part you wanted to take or did you ever know that it just happened? Do I still know even? I mean... <laughs> I mean, there's a, I can't be as presumptive as the question, if you forgive me for saying that. Um, I, don't think a, I don't think a musician, I mean, I know some musicians say, oh, I'm a musician, that's my path. Uh, I've never been that sort of a person in, in the sense that um, I, have, I have many other interests uh, other than music making. But the thing I've done most is music making. And... I mean, if I compare myself to my own kids, shall we say, I don't know if I'm any more interested in music than they were, mm -hmm. or than, than they are. Uh, 
or was I even more interested? I think I had the same level of interest then as they have now. But what happened to me, I suppose, more than anything else was a process of having latent interest, some latent ability, and then perhaps um, some uh, powerful mentoring and, and some, some very influential uh, pathways that I was able to go on. And so before I knew it really, I had a, a role and a, an identity and a pathway within the traditional music community by the time I was even a late teen. Okay, well, admit it or not, there is a it's called an uh, influence, and then there's uh, Sean O'Reid, uh, who died, I think, when you were, you were seven. Um, but then later on, uh, you had a partnership. In fact, you, did you record first when you were 12, I think, yeah? Well, yeah, I was, I mean, one of the great influences, sorry, I'm moving my, <laughs> I just, I don't know why I did that. Of course, in the locality where I grew up, singing was, you know, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that singing in Coulee was what fiddle playing is in County Clare, you know. And mm -hmm. um, some places are known for various forms of traditional music. And one of the influencers in in that year was Sean O'Reilly, of course, his arrival in Coulee in the early 60s and his premature departure through death in 1971. But during his time in Coulee, I mean, he set up a choir which I would say served as a sort of a, an engine for traditional song, a, a sort of a protective engine, uh, such that um, under his son, Pather, we were going to singing lessons, you know, every Saturday and singing every Sunday uh, and, and, and other events too outside of that, which was a sort of a, a sort of a band of, of friends and colleagues who traveled around Ireland doing these concerts, Core Coulee would do this kind of thing. And I found that very enjoyable. And also it was a tremendous place to learn your craft um, in, a, in a sort of a secure environment where you weren't foregrounded all the time. But inevitably, I was foregrounded, oftentimes more often than I was comfortable with. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, sometimes I found it quite stressful to be foregrounded. I, I, I would say that. And uh, I, I sang in a lot of competitions at the time, as did many of my later colleagues in their various instrumental forms, including, say, shall we say, Martin Hayes. One, one competition in particular, Sloga, was very influential on my development. Um, it was being run by Michael Davitt and other um, artistic, uh, influential, far-seeing people. Philip King was involved, Princhees um, Nigarhi, these fabulous, young, powerful entities within the Irish language. Um, poetic literary re revival of the 60s. They were kind of leading the charge for that com competition and they sucked in my generation uh, into sort of learning channels and perfecting our craft as musicians in a way that I felt was more expansive than say the Arachtas competitions. Mm. Um, 
I mean, I remember even preparing performances for competitions in pop music, for example, <laughs> in Sloga. And I mean, I'm laughing at myself, but in essence, this was a very positive thing because I think it was, um, it, maybe it ingrained in me the idea that I was an artist first and a Shano singer second. Maybe. I'm not sure, but maybe it did. Yeah. No, I remember uh, I got a scholarship to the Guildhouse and went to uh, run a forest year. And I remember Michael O'Donnell and Dahi Sproul singing Beatles songs. And it was the most wonderful thing in the world that could be, that we could do this in an Irish language uh, atmosphere, that we spoke Irish, but we were still part of this modern world, as it was in, in 1969, that we could love the Beatles and speak Irish at the same time, which bizarrely enough was a revelation, a revelation uh, to us. How did the partnership with uh, Noel Hill and Tony McMahon come up? Well, um, I think within the orbit of the Sloga competitions, you had some of the some of the actors in that, like Philip King, for example, were also working in radio. And um, if I can mention Philip first, I remember being on his program, The Green Groves. And of course, parallel to that, um, Tony McMahon was producing programs for both television and radio. I think The Long Note was the one he was producing for radio. And I remember seeing him at one of one or other of the Sloga competitions when I was quite young. Uh, I mean, very, very young, maybe eight or maybe younger, I don't know. And being spoken to by him and recorded. Um, I suppose there was a level of at the time, I think the perception of Shannos, shall we say, or even uh, the phrase is a problematic phrase, but let's say native um, traditional singing was that it was an old person's pursuit, that it was a phenomenon um, that rarely left the Western reaches of Ireland. And, and to some extent it was, and to some extent it was... Um, also kind of confined within the competitive structures of, of the Iraqis competitions. So I think um, maybe they found that someone as young as I attempting to be a practitioner was, was, was certainly novel. And I think that was one of the first times I met Tony McMahon. And I think in Dublin then when I moved there uh, to study in 82, I remember doing a lot of concerts in... Um, various venues in, in Dublin, Capel Street, um, Mother Red Caps. And I think around that period, I, I became, I spent, started spending more time with Tony and Noel, who were, of course, by then, um, doing performances and recordings of their own. Uh, in fact, I was at the recording uh, of Live in Not Nagree, uh, I, in fact, I even, I, I, it's not important to say, but I like to say it because it's because it's a historical fact. I was instrumental in some of the recording and that I was asked by Ty Kelleher, the wonderful um, sound engineer from Salon Studios, to to assist him in holding the rifle mic on, on, the, on the dancers. And uh, so, so the dancers, I'm responsible for 
I have some role to play in you hearing them. So I must have known Tony and Noel back then pretty well. And we, I remember we used to do quite a few concerts together around Ireland subsequently, in the subsequent years. Um, we would go out as a trio. And then, of course, we made the record Ashling Each Hole. And then, of course, I also worked with Tony as a presenter on the Pure Drop shortly after I graduated. Maybe I was about 23 or 24. Okay. Uh, Tony and Noel are very wedded to the tradition. They're great thinkers uh, about the music as well. They're great players, but also great thinkers uh, about the music. But um, you went over to the, to the dark side and joined the Afro-Kilt sound system. And you also recorded the, the solo album, Seven Steps of uh, Mercy. Uh, well, in, <laughs> in the same uh, entry, it says that uh, the album is uh, perhaps the most unusual album of Sean No Singing ever made. Um, what were you listening to that steered you in that direction? Or did it come from your experience? Or what was uh, driving you towards it, this new interpretation of Sean No's? Um, well, I don't know if I was even striving for a new interpretation of Shannon's. Um, I, I, I remember feeling a sense of frustration with the kind of general recording industry in Ireland in that I suppose I, I might have been feeling that time and I know full well that I was feeling that I had spent many years developing my my art and that really they had no interest in it or didn't know what to do with it. And yes, you, you, you got the plaudits and people said, oh, he's a great singer or we know he's good or, but make a record with him? I don't think so. Um, there was a number of reasons for that, I think. Um, to be fair to the, the, to the industry, not a phrase I, I ever enjoyed using, um, the, the, their, their notion of any sort of development in the commercial arena was that it had to be commercial. And so they, there was a lot of records being made where people were singing kind of soft folk pop type records, you know. I don't have to mention any names. I think we know who, who they are, which is fine. But I wasn't really interested in doing that. I, 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 I was more, much more influenced by other trends in music by the time I got to make that record. I'd been very interested in ambient electronic music for many years. And I was looking for a matrix, if you like, a, a solution to how I could um, reframe my particular idiom and skill set into a more contemporary ear, if you like, uh, where the world could hear it and understand it and accept it and feel it and appreciate it. And I wasn't really going to get that from folk pop producers of the 80s in Ireland. That just wasn't going to happen. And I'm awfully glad of that in hindsight. So I basically reached out to Real World Records because I'd heard Peter Gabriel's um, seminal soundtrack for the uh, it was called Passion Sources. It was for a Martin Scorsese album, The Last Temptation of Christ, or rather soundtrack. 
but it was the Source's album for that. And I'd heard that and it, it knocked me sideways. I thought it was extraordinary because in, in, that, in that album, you had a contemporary cutting edge, alternative rock ambient production being applied to African and Asian Sufi forms. And of course, to my mind, I thought, well, if it works for that, I can't see why it wouldn't work for me. So I, I remember making it very rough tape into, I think I went down to Ty Keller actually, to maybe record maybe half a dozen songs and sent, sent a cassette to Real World. And within a month, they, they got, Peter got back to me actually himself. And um, I was signed within a couple of months. And just before I embarked on making a solo record, they had this recording week event, which involved, you know, maybe a dozen different camps of production on, on site in the, in the recording studios from all over the world. And I just happened to wander into one or two of them. And I, I lingered longer with the Afro-Celts. They were calling themselves the Afro-Celts. Simon Emerson had this concept. And basically just hung out with them for a while, not really thinking about it at all, and made a bunch of recordings, which later became a record, which sold very well, which forced us to make a gig in Castres in Spain because people were demanding it, which then made the record company think, God, we've got to do something about this, which delayed my solar record by about a year. <laughs> so there you are. And always delayed my solar records thereafter because whenever I wanted to make a solo record, which by the way, I was both entitled and expected to do contractually, I always had to wait until the Afro-Celts weren't doing anything. Mm. But the logical person within me knows that the Afro-Celts probably subsidized my own records. Mm. Mm. So I'm not complaining. But back to, back to your core question about that it was the most unusual record ever made on Shandos. I guess so, if you want to see it that way. Except that I didn't call it a Shandos record. I didn't go... Shandos, Irla Olinard, like you might expect in the 1980s LP coming from the various record entities in Ireland. They didn't call it that. In fact, I called it Schacht Goschgeim Letrokre, which, which is a, a phrase borrowed from our, our, our Shanachas, our folklore, which means that if you, if you see a cortege going in a certain direction, if you see a cortege going in a second, certain direction, you must follow, walk with them seven steps. And so I use it as a metaphor to indicate that I will walk those seven steps with my own history and with my own um, inheritance, but thereafter I'll walk my own way. So it shows, I hope, a respect, but also an, a desire to to walk to the beat of my own drum, as it were. So it was very deliberate titling. Um, and I, could, I think most people would regard that album as not just unusual, but um, a serious challenge to the idea of freeze-framing Shandos. You know, on sort of the pretense that there is nothing else going on around you other than what you're pretending is hermetically sealed 
because nothing really is. <laughs> did any did anyone take up the challenge? You said it was a, a challenge to that uh, concept of Shannon well, being frozen in time. I think it definitely caused a bit of an impact when it came out, but it would also have been, I'm sure, really difficult for some people to either understand or interpret or comment upon because it didn't really it didn't really answer any of the questions they were asking it was designed to answer the questions i was asking of myself you know where am i from what interests me in the poetics and in the historicity and in the richness of my own tradition and what interests me as an artist who wants to express his own ideas, his own yearnings within the fact that I grew up singing a certain way, but listening to a hell of a lot of other stuff. So it wouldn't have been, I am pretty confident in saying that the discourse in Irish traditional music at the time would have been very unwieldy in its ability to either respond or interact with what that record had to offer. Uh, I'll be called elitist for saying that, but you know, I think it's the truth. You know, I, I think it has taken Irish traditional music a very, very long time to recognize that it isn't the center of any universe. You know, that yeah, it's a, it's a, it's kind maybe, of a, yes, it's, it's maybe a very Irish thing that, uh, you know, because we're great storytellers, we think we're the only storytellers in the world. And because we have a sense of place, we think we're the only people who love our native land and think uh, uh, so much and maybe deify the land. We think we're the only ones, but we're not. We're not. I mean, look, I absolutely adore traditional music. I think, I think, you know, my record speaks for itself. I've made so much music in that field and I've loved every minute of it right up until last year. I was making records where, you know, there were fiddles on stage, you know what I mean? And <laughs> so like, I have absolutely no doubt that of my own deep love for it and the inherence of the language within that as an absolute touchstone for me. But at the same time, I think there was something pre-Galilean about the way people looked at our music right up into the nineties and beyond. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, it was tied up with various other, um, shall we say, myopic tendencies that we had culturally in Ireland uh, to do with public morality, private morality, um, uh, you know, issues to do with identity, um, to do with religions, all of these things coincide and I believe that Irish traditional music but when I was started out making records there might have been even a cohort that thought I was engaged in acts of betrayal <laughs> yeah. and I can understand why they would simply yeah. because nobody stood outside the fold mm. Absolutely. the fold was more important than anything else you know <laughs> and the perception that these cultural utterances and cultural energies are somehow walled off and must be kept that way was the predominant uh, gaze of the time. But I do believe that those 
those ways of looking at things have proven to be unreliable and untruthful. Yeah. And I think that battle has been long once against the people who want to uh, keep Shandos as it is. So as I keep saying, you know, people complained about Carolyn uh, bringing all this Italian stuff into Irish music. We've always had those outside influences. We've always had the, the modernizers at various places uh, throughout uh, history. But I was speaking to uh, Patek Lacken, uh, who said that uh, Groups, uh, instrumental groups, are not really a good idea. That for musicians, uh, the solo musician is key, and obviously solo singers uh, are key. But you played with the Alfred Kells and you're with uh, uh, the Gloaming. Now, of course, what's the dynamic within the Gloaming that I think I know anyway? But tell me what's the dynamic between the various musicians and yourself within the Gloaming? <laughs> you said you know already why don't you tell me you probably have much more accurate uh, uh, I, I can't see it from the outside like you know I'm well, what, 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 one of the things we're talking about is that <laughs> I mean you're not Martha as in Martha Reason of Andellas you're not Freddie as in Freddie and the, uh, the dream makers pacemakers um, that everyone has their own space within the gloaming but for some uh magical reason everything comes together but each individual is uh, strong and stands on its own and uh, I think you said about uh, recording uh, with uh, Thomas Bartlett that uh, the two of you bounce off each other that you get you get something from each other's uh, energy creative energy is that I think that's what they're talking about would you agree well, I think um, to, to, be, to be serious about it and to, to try to answer your question, um, yeah, there's a lot of strong personalities in the band. Um, and of course, that's because they all have pretty highly developed careers and attributes and abilities um, and are able to access those. And they're not the same for everybody, you know. Everybody's got a little piece of the picture, although we know each other for many years. I know Martin Hayes since we were young teenagers at those slogan competitions. I know Kivine for over 12 years by now. Um, but there is a sophistication that hopefully that comes with age where you are able to relinquish some of those, um, you know, traits in order for a larger interaction to happen. Because, I mean, reflecting on Paddy Glacken's point, that, 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 I don't know if Paddy Glacken actually means that. I know Paddy Glacken, and he's a very sophisticated uh, appreciator of art and maker of art. Uh, I, I, if, if you say he said that, that's fine, but I'd love to know who the audience was when he said it. I mean, the, the thing about ensemble music is it, it cannot be done unless there is a bleeding of the, at the edges. It cannot be done unless there are acts of mutual generosity on stage. It cannot be done from the ivory tower of the solo musician is, is king and is key. And of course, you rightly point out or infer that the solo musician idea has been at the heart of um, 
a large portion of the orthodox sort of discourse in Irish traditional music. You know, the, the root, the, the quick, the nub, the heart. <laughs> I'm thinking of other words. The, the, you know, it, the diamond core is the solo thing, you know. And, and of course, the solo thing is amazing because, you know, you, you become more deep when, you, when you're on your own. But there are other things that happen when you're in an ensemble. And the first thing is that you listen to others. And this is so obvious, but it's, it's an important point to make. It's an obvious thing to say, but it's, it's an important point. You, a a lot, much larger portion of your brain and your heart and your, your spirit is listening and then responding as opposed to just doing on your own. So there's listening and responding. There's relinquishing. There's giving. There's taking. And I, I always found that wonderful thing in the gloaming. Um, you know, normally I, I would have been walking on and off stage with the Afrocels, for example. I wasn't an instrumentalist on that, in that band. And the gloaming, thankfully, were allowing for me to be on stage. Um, and I don't mean they were allowing. I mean, I think they wanted me to be on stage all the time. And I think I wanted to be in playing the harmonium or supplying these drones allowed me to be both receiving and giving and responding and witnessing. Uh, something that I, I think is another part of being in a band where you are, you are plugged into playing and stuff, but you're also witnessing what's happening as a whole. And I was, I was actually in a, an extremely good position to witness that because I was far less busy as an instrumentalist than others. And I could really witness the, the kind of magical uh, synthesis happening and those beautiful moments. And I could even see people reacting to it, you know, side stage and front stage. And so I had a way of measuring when, when magic lights started going on. That was a wonderful um, experience for me. Really, it took me by surprise. A very enriching experience. And, um, you know, I mean, Thomas Bartlett was central to this as well, to be honest, very central because his piano playing, um, his kind of hypersensitivity, uh, I don't mean that as a pejorative, I mean his absolute sensitivity to the moment and to the various components of, of the band. Bear in mind that he has to intersect with all of these different types of energies, including me, uh, who has a kind of a formalistic way of singing when I, when I stand there, you know, in the, in the vertical. It's very formal. And so he has to get into that kind of vibe. And then he has to, to get into dreamy things and he has to get into energy things. And there's a lot asked of him in terms of his versatility. But I think he did a good job of containing that without killing it. And I think he was very largely responsible for the choreography of that that sort of coherent wave that happened between us. Sorry about the long answers. I'm trying to explain. But sometimes long answers are required to ex to explain things. As basic and this is what I love about this series of podcasts that they are that the people we're speaking to are real thinkers as well as being great musicians or singers. And I want to ask about uh, two things that you've done recently. Uh, the first one, which completely passed me by, is something called Ologon, a cantata in doublespeak. Yeah. <laughs> it passed everybody by, but we didn't really release it over here. 
it's on Spotify. But, 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 I'm sure but, it is. I've never done an interview about it over here or anything because we're going to remount it over here in a few years' time. We're going to do, we're going to do it, uh, an augmented version, hopefully in the mm-hmm. concert hall. But please, I, I interrupted you. But uh, tell me about it then for in a few years' time. Uh, if it isn't my Dan Truman who plays with uh, Kevin O'Reilly, of course, two big fans of the Hardanger. That's right. I mean, I I remember the first time I met Dan Truman, I think Creveen was with him in Dublin and he brought him down here to, just to meet me. I have no idea why he did that, but <laughs> he did anyway. And we, 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 we had a wonderful conversation and... Uh, over the years then, I, I, Dan did some settings for me for a, a big orchestral performance I did about um, eight years ago with the National Concert Orchestra. He, he set three songs, which, which I'm going to release at some point. They're really, really spectacular. Uh, three Elizabeth Cronin songs, actually. Uh, or, sorry, one of them is an Elizabeth Cronin song, but they're knit together as a triad. But um, we were discussing the, the I, he was he was wondering, was there, could we, could we do anything together? And I was wondering it too. And so I went to him with the idea of the thorn, um, sort of the, that was the first thing we discussed, some sort of exploration of the Ku Collins myth, the Collins saga. And of course, then we were looking for maybe a partner to help us with a, a libretto, or to write to write the words and so forth, and we spoke to Paul Muldoon, the wonderful poet from uh, from up north, uh, an amazing man, a man I had known myself for many years actually on and off, um, and eventually anyway I ended up in Princeton quite often. I've been teaching there now for the last three or four years. Um, one, one term a year kind of thing. And we, we worked up this project with an amazing um, ensemble called, I'm sorry about those pings, an ensemble called Eighth Blackbird. So it's a kind of a crazy song cycle, basically. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's very unusual because of the sonorities Dan writes mm-hmm. and the type of stance, positionality and capabilities of, and musical mind of, 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 Paul Muldoon, who is unlike anybody else in the way he writes, as, 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 as you will know, both in the fact that it's, it's, I mean, it's quite funny, it's quite dark, it's strange, it's kind of bizarre in a way. I mean, there's some, it's, some of it's like country music, you know? Um, I mean, like Irish country music, <laughs> you know? Uh, but we are doing an, an, an we are doing an expanded version of it, with um, a, an additional voice, um, an absolutely wonderful singer called Gelsie Bell, uh, of of New York, and um, she's joining us. And we're doing we're doing an extended version for New Music Dublin. I think our tradition now. I'm not sure. Um, in, in about a year's time, COVID has retarded our efforts. Uh, somewhat, but it, it hasn't stopped us yet. So I'm hoping to do a, a more expanded version of it in front of a live audience in the concert hall in about a year and a half's time. Fingers crossed. It's, it's uh, absolutely wonderful. I just heard it last night and I thought... What did you, what did you make of it? I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Obviously, 
I didn't listen to the whole thing on wonderful speakers, but just I loved it. I loved uh, the fact there's a Belfast song with um, uh, my Aunt Jane. That's right. <laughs> I'm so glad you picked up on that. Um, because, like, I mean, it, 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 it's very Paul, you know? Yeah. And it's very Dan. I'm not sure if it's very Irla. I don't know. I don't think so. I think I've tried my best. Um, but, there's, you know, every project you do, every new project you do, um, it's, it's extremely challenging, you know, to try and find who am I in this piece? Can I actually be myself and still serve the, the work at hand? It, it is really the most difficult thing. I, you know, I've worked with Dunnock Adenahy as well in, in those ways and just trying to find uh, a location for yourself within these works can be, can be the greatest challenge of all, even beyond the fact that the music can be really difficult for a, a folk singer because uh, you, you're within that uh, very structured, um, very mapped out, certainly temporally and tonally too, mapped out sort of matrix of, of classical music or Western art music, which, which, you know, for someone like me, I am a thousand times more home with pop music or rock music or alt pop or alt folk or channels, which is like, you can control the parameters a lot more. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the gloaming, I never gave a damn about you know, being on time or being late with a half beat. I kind of controlled all that. Uh, we, we, we were just, we just, nobody ever said, God, that was very slow. And you missed a beat there. That You missed a bar there. That, like, I mean, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> Whereas it's a, it's a persistent um, danger, fear, consideration um, issue when you're doing these other forms because it's, it's the, 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 the degree of complexity it is, but also I should say Dan Truman is a, quite an extraordinary composer. Um, there's something really special about his work. It, first of all, I think it's entirely unique in, in the world. Um, his, his sensibility to our folk tradition is of, of, a, of a degree I haven't witnessed before. But then he has these extraordinary... Um, sonorities from the Nordic Hardanger world and that aesthetic, which he has brought into a much larger ensemble. I, I, I'd love to be able to share with you at some point the recordings that I will make with him of the three songs he set for me, which are in that vein. I mean, he's getting the orchestra to play like these very unusual tones. Um, he, he's, he's, a, he's a fantastic beast, really, as a, as a as a composer and an extremely uh, good person to work with because he, he invites what I would call, uh, he has a maximalist view of collaboration. He wants, to, <laughs> like he wants you to write, he wants you to contribute. He wants you to, 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 to author, you know? And, and so that, that's a wonderful invitation. And also he's just such a lovely person, but the, I've had amazing times working with Paul and, and another extraordinary man, very generous man. Um, it's, you know, it's, you talk about the work sometimes and the work is interesting and it is, but when, when you look back, it's the, the human connections that um, leave the deeper mark. Uh, understandably. 
Uh, penultimate question. Uh, you've just finished working on Willa Hidden You with uh, Neil Martin. I have. Just How did that go? Well, <laughs> very well, I hope. Well, I hope. <laughs> Certainly the orchestra sounded great. And um, I think we did, we did uh, half of the vocals before lockdown, or, or I think something like that. And then we had to wait. It was quite difficult to get the... the I did most of my singing uh, separately from the orchestra. There were a few songs that I did where I was guided, they were guided by me, uh, God forbid. Um, fascinating uh, experience. I mean, I, I, I was talking to Neil about the idea of Bulla Sivna and we, we looked at the original Irish version and uh, then, then Neil um, was looking at Heaney's wonderful um, retelling and uh, the, the, the Heaney family were very supportive a very very supportive of us doing this and then of course as well we we have we have in our midst uh, the icon that is Stephen Ray mm -hmm. just an extraordinary man um, a man by the way who who has a, I think a profound love of traditional music and the language I mean I, I know that to be a fact it's many years ago now since I did a show in London called I Could Read the Sky with Tim O'Grady and Martin Hayes and others and Stephen Ray. And that was the first time I met Stephen, but thankfully it certainly wasn't the last. And uh, he is an absolute gem. So he, he tells the story. You see, Buddha Sivna is a sort of a, an interesting tract in that there's a storyteller voice who stands apart, kind of the eye above. And then there's Sweeney's own utterances mm -hmm. from his perilous perspective. That's my job. Um, and then I think Neil has done a fantastic job in, in, in creating um, a beautiful, strange, kind of beguiling atmosphere uh, for the whole thing. And another project I should mention to you, because I don't know if you were going to mention it, perhaps you haven't heard about it. I've just finished a record as well. It's just came out last week of Linda Buckley. Linda Buckley mm -hmm. is a composer mm -hmm. from Kinsale. Uh, she's one of the professors of music in the conservatory in Glasgow. Um, a graduate of Trinity College, erstwhile lecturer in Trinity. One of the new wave of uh, new classical composers in Dublin uh, would have studied under Donuka Dennehy and she has a beautiful new r record out called um, uh, well hang on I'll just get, get it for you here <laughs> please excuse me um, I'll just come back and I can say all that again if you, if you wish maybe you're going to edit this or maybe you're not this is called From Ocean's Floor all right no, I haven't seen it. It's just out, just literally the 24th. And on the back, there's the first track is called O Ichter Mara, the title track. And that's a, a three song song cycle. And you also have Isabel O'Connell on piano. You have Joby Burgess on percussion. You have the Contempo Quartet. Uh, you have Dara Morgan on violin. So it's uh, strings, electronics, voice, very, very beautiful. I, I recommend it to you. 
Okay, and uh, to the audience. Okay, final final question, and I should really give people warning about this question. Uh, the world is about to end, so we're going to send a time capsule off to uh, whatever aliens are up there. And we we'll want a piece by Erla O. Leonard to be in this time capsule. What piece, what song or what piece of music uh, of your own that's been recorded would you put into that time capsule? Well, I, I suppose I, I could, uh, well, <laughs> I, I can make a decision on that. It doesn't mean that I'd think the same tomorrow. But there's a track that I wrote um, in honor of my father, who's 92 now, called Stay, S-T-A-Y, on Fox Light. And that, that is, that is um, perhaps my most personal song uh, for him, because he's a beautiful man and um, wonderful father. And uh, that would be what I would put in there. Okay. Uh, I have been sitting doing this interview with a perma smile <laughs> because it's, it's wonderful to listen to people who go so deeply into music, who are so in love with the music, who are so intelligent about the music and who have not themselves, but the music at the heart. Uh, of things, so it's been a wonderful experience for me uh, doing this uh, interview. So much, thank uh, you. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you a huge amount. Irla, and uh, we're going to finish off with uh, Irlo Ulianard uh, playing and singing Stay.
That's all for today, folks. So until the next time, from me, Robert McMillan, and the Erchudenkjoil podcast from Madrid, Slanagas Banacht. <laughs>